Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. This week, a House Judiciary Subcommittee held a hearing to discuss establishing a federal commission to explore reparations for the descendants of enslaved Americans. The issue has gained renewed urgency in the wake of last year's police killings and ensuing protests for racial justice. The concept of reparations is ancient. And Kathy Powers has been studying transitional justice and reparations around the world for years. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of New Mexico. Powers says her interest in this field began 20 years ago in a class. And a biracial student who is Jewish and African-American asked a really profound question. Said, can I do a paper for this class on reparations? And I'm trying to understand why my Jewish grandmother I received reparations for the Holocaust, but my African-American grandmother did not for slavery. His question started me on a path um, that changed my entire career. What is the concept of reparations historically, and how have they been used around the world? The idea of reparations is as old as human history, and the norms about what it is and how it's used have changed over time. So originally, that reparations was really about punishment for involvement in war and for war damages between countries. Concurrently, there was always also the idea of using reparations to repair harm. And we see these roots in the major religions of the world, in major civilizations. What has happened at the international level is that We've had the norm about reparations used to punish in war. It's called victor's justice. And at the same time, um, a recognition of human rights internationally, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And the idea that all humans have a set of rights, regardless of where you are, who you are, where you live in the world, and what characteristics you have. And it was with the United Nations Right to Remedy in 2005 that said that these rights, if violated, that there should be reasons for harm. And that uh, states in which individuals who have been harmed lived have a responsibility to ensure um, that their citizens get repaired for harm through reparations. And then also a social movement across the planet to oust authoritarian leaders across Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, and Central Europe. And then people on the ground saying, in order to trust that these new democratic governments will uphold the rule of law, the past regimes need to be held accountable. And so Bishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa raised a profound point. He said, this is not like the end of World War II when the allies could go home. We in South Africa have to figure out a way to go forward and live with each other. And so he advocated for truth commissions that gave victims the opportunity, gave them voice to be able to say what happened to them, to have acknowledgement that this is what was done, and recommendations for apology and remedy for um, individuals in the government, individuals in society who had accountability to say also what done for the record um, in order to facilitate truth, reconciliation in society so that it can move forward and hopefully end political violence. 
But then there's the question still of what happens to the victims? How do you restore them? And this is the cutting edge of transitional justice today, is how do you repair and restore victim mass human rights violations? Reparations could be the return of land. Reparations in, in terms of health, which is kind of the cutting edge of, of reparation today, is if your hands and your feet are cut off so you walk, work, or vote, as in Sierra Leone, reparations can be prosthetics, for example, or if you have suffered sexual violence repeatedly um, or other forms of torture, that reparations might be access to psychological care for the rest of your life. So the rest of the world, especially the global South, because they dealt with how to repair harm in the aftermath of civil conflict and state oppression, are, have been way ahead in thinking about reparations for harm and kind of connecting it um, as opposed to the West. Although the question of reparations, especially for slavery, is one of the oldest questions and efforts on the planet. This week, we saw renewed attention here in the United States to the reparations question for Black Americans. But as you say, this movement has been going on for, I want to say, decades, but probably longer. What is potentially different about the conversation now? Among the first reparations efforts for African Americans for slavery was 40 acres and a mule. And this is something that President Lincoln was considering along, you know, with the development of the Emancipation Proclamation which gave some Africans, some states, um, but no citizenship, no job, no home, no protection. But when Andrew Jackson came in um, as president, he rescinded the policy. So what ended up happening is many enslaved Africans who had been freed were slaughtered because they had no protection. There's a very long literature and long history of individual reparations claims by different families. There have been organizations who have reparations for slavery. The last time it was a legitimate part of presidential discourse in, in a campaign was the Reconstruction period. So we're in a profound historical moment, especially since the um, murders, police murders of George Floyd and Taylor. There have been a wave of reparations bills at the city level. Evanston, Illinois, Asheville, North Carolina, DC, Providence, Rhode Island, have passed laws that either um, stipulate reparations to African-Americans who are citizens of those cities or um, establish a truth commission or some working group whose job it is to investigate the history of slavery and how it's affected African-Americans in those cities and then to make recommendations. And then you have another level at the level of the state. So California, New York, Pennsylvania, same thing. And then you have the national level, which we've been talking about this week, HR 40, which is a proposal for a national commission. But that effort has been going on unsuccessfully since 1989. Success that has happened has been since 2019, um, given that the political climate has changed. But prior to this, and in recognition of the lack of success 
in courts and in the legislat state legislatures and the national legislature. There were other strategies that the African-American community has used to pursue reparations or to get to the truth. So for example, city ordinances and Chicago, LA, has city ordinances that if a company wanted a contract with the city to do work, it had to first conduct an investigation into its legacy or history, if there's any connection to slavery. And what they use is these contracts, the desire for a contract as a truth mechanism that you must lay this out if it is discovered that there's any kind of connection, a proposal for how you might address it, and then you can get the contract. One thing I, I think we should also acknowledge is in 2016, the United States withdrew from the United Nations Human Rights Council. There are 47 countries who are members. The Africa Group put forward a resolution that said, the United Nations should hold a truth commission to hold the United States accountable for law enforcement violence towards people of African descent in the United States. And for the first time ever, something like this passed anonymously. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm talking with Kathy Powers, an associate professor of political science at the University of New Mexico who studies reparations around the world. Many people just assume it's a monetary solution, but that's only one small component. There are a lot of different ways to, to approach this, right? Right, exactly, exactly. There are opportunities to be very creative in how we think about what are reparations. So in the West, in the United States in particular, we tend to think about reparations as money, as a payment. In the present efforts, all of the bills that have been laid out that I've talked about at the city and state level, even the national in the recommendations that have already been made, for example, by ADOS, the American Descendants of the South, is to address the Black-White wealth gap as a function of enslavement, as a function of Jim Crow redistricting the layered and systematic and continuous human rights violations that have been directed towards the African-American community in the United States, that there should be a significant monetary component to address the Black-White wealth gap, especially because the transfer of land in the United States is the primary way that wealth gets transferred. Land was taken away. Uh, African-Americans couldn't own land or could not live in certain areas, could not get loans. If they could get loans, there were predatory conditions on them. And so this is the economic argument for financial form of reparations that make absolute sense. I make the argument that reparations should be a portfolio of things and there should be a monetary component, which is now standard. But also what has become very common in reparations packages is also to have, for example, an educational component, recognizing that not only are your opportunities for education impacted, but your families as well. So educational reparations can be rebuilding schools. They could be investing in schools. Uh, it could be rewriting the textbooks to include a broader range of African-American history. In the Chicago police torture case, 
Remind us what that was, Kathy, real quick. Okay, sure, sure. From 19, I think it's 1971 to 1992, John Byrd was a white police commander who maintained uh, torture sites on the south side and the west side of Chicago. And generations of Black men from the families and communities were tortured um, in these centers. Some permanently disappeared. Some spent years there. He and his detectives planted evidence that led to Black men being incarcerated and sometimes for longer and for crimes than they should have been and for crimes that they did not commit. This was well known in Chicago politics. And it wasn't until about a year or two ago that their city council of Chicago passed a reparations bill to provide reparations to 100 men. And there's far more, but they had the strongest documentation to support what happened to them. It was $5 million total. They each got a monetary payment, free access to um, education in the Chicago city colleges and vocational Uh, And then also that the Chicago public schools textbooks be rewritten to include this story so that it would never be forgotten and could never repeat it again. And then memorialization, to have a memorial to represent what happened again so that you never forget. And it was a competition for anyone to participate in. Similarly, the comfort women's effort to get reparations from the Japanese government for forced slavery uh, during World War II, in which they were forced to have sex with soldiers on the battlefield, and many were killed in the process. Those who have survived, um, NGOs, helped them put forward demands for operations. And for them, they actually didn't want money because they felt like it was a payoff by the government who refused to apologize and acknowledge what was done in hopes that when they die, the story dies. And so what they demanded is that the textbooks be rewritten so that it can never be forgotten what we want. And so probably the message I'm trying to send is that there needs to be a broad range of reparations because it isn't a single human rights violation when we talk about, we just talk about slavery. It was not only the loss of freedom, the incarceration, the torture, the breeding, some of the medical experimentation that was done. There was putting human beings in dangerous situations, knowing that the probability of death was high, but slave owners were willing to do it because they could ensure enslaved individuals as property and know that they would be compensated if they died. That's how New York Life Insurance still exists today and made its initial profits. Why are reparations important to fully addressing systemic racism in our country? We talk about the human rights violations that have been directed towards African-Americans as if it is in the past. And I hear this all the time. Slavery was so long ago. Why should we have to pay now? As if since slavery, the discrimination in human rights violations directed towards the community does not exist anymore. If we just take, for instance, the arguments about brutality and the targeting of the African-American community, that starts during slavery. 
with police gangs whose job it was to round up um, African-Americans. Some were free, some were escaped enslaved Africans and then take them to the South. And there has been systematic, continuous, uninterrupted targeting of the black community ever since. There's a thread that runs American society that the institutions of government, the use of state violence has been used towards the community and, and little has been done about it. And in order to, for society to be, the relationship to be mended, to stop the human violations, there has to be information. So for example, with many of the cities that have been under investigation by the DOJ for police brutality, part of what is going on is institutional reform. How do you change the culture of police departments to mitigate the targeting or the, the differential treatment of African-Americans? There has to be reparations to not only acknowledge what has happened in the past and what continues to happen, but also to repair the harm. And so I think this is why we see all of a sudden and it's unfortunate that it took these people dying for national and global recognition that something is wrong and should be addressed today in this society. And so, unfortunately, these murders have jump-started efforts, not only, I would say, towards reparations, but also equity and inclusion and diversity in institutions from universities to corporations. Finally, recognizing that systematic racial injustice has been part of the fabric of the United States since its inception. We're still in a pandemic. How does that make this question even more relevant? Oh, <laughs> okay, I'll try to be brief <laughs> in my, my answer to that question. <laughs> so I've been uh, uh, recently working with a biologist, uh, Professor Melanie Moses, we've been doing work on trying to understand how the legacy of systematic racial injustice has impacted how COVID-19 has differentially impacted different groups and how historic context within the United States, the layers of human rights violations have created a situation where we have differential access to healthcare, if at all, racism in healthcare, that who are dominates as the most common type of person who is an essential worker, who has a higher chance of being exposed to COVID-19, and as a function of not having access to very good care, who has a higher probability of dying from it. And so we've even heard stories, especially early on in the pandemic, that two people um, arrive at an emergency room with the same symptoms and the way that they get interpreted is different. And for the white patient, they are hospitalized and they are given access to medical care. And for the black patient, that person is turned away multiple times. And by the time they get medical care, oftentimes it has been too late. 
You're listening to University Showcase on KUNM, and I'm Megan Kamrick. On this episode, I'm talking with Associate Professor of Political Science Kathy Powers at UNM about her scholarship on reparations. The issue is seeing renewed interest at the federal level. We have seen uh, examples in the past, like Japanese Americans who were interned in World War II. You brought up some of the men who were tortured in Chicago. So there is precedent. They're smaller groups in some ways. Um, And what we're talking about in terms of reparations for black Americans is really wide ranging and complicated in terms of how to implement this fairly. Do you have suggestions how Mm -hmm. this we can make sure we don't get this wrong or how it how it should be done fairly. So if I can just take you to some of the issues that need to be considered in in this case today, and then some ways that they might be addressed, is um, for the first time in this movement, there has been a question of who counts and who doesn't for reparations for slavery. So Eidos, the American descendants of the South, are one of the most influential groups today, and I would say largely responsible for putting reparation slavery on the agenda um, in the presidential campaign, has been heavily influential in some cities passing their laws. L.A. is an example. And so Eidos advocates for a broad range of programs for African-Americans, and when I say that, I mean um, people in the African diaspora in the United States, but very specifically says there should be reparations for slavery for those who are direct descendants of enslaved Africans in the United States. To differentiate between being forced to come to the United States and choosing to come as an immigrant to the United States. Although there are people from these communities whose families have been here for generations who have also suffered discrimination. It is the first time that there's been, the diaspora has been broken up by a definition of who counts for reparations and who doesn't. For the Eidos definition, these individuals are called Black Americans. And so this term has taken hold in many of the largest cities in the United States, and people are starting to use this term. Um, Eidos has been accused of being anti-immigrant and xenophobic. And its perspective is not trying to be exclusionary, but trying to recognize the experience of people who are descendants of enslaved Africans in the United States. So to, that has to be established to talk about sort of how to go forward. I think that there needs to be a national city and state level um, effort towards reparations as we see, not just some cities and states, I think it should be across the United States, that's one. Two, I think from within the movement, if they can't go for everyone all the time, I recognize that resources are often limited in political world. So there should be coalitional efforts between different groups um, within the African diaspora to pursue rations for not just slavery, but for discrimination towards the broader community. Um, in our existence in this community as well. 
I think that there should be a reparations package. I think that there should be the monetary component. I think that we can think creatively about what educational reparations might look like, investing in our public schools, especially in inner city neighborhoods, uh, historically black colleges, in our churches, institutions in the community that work within the community. I think there should be a health component to reparations. We know scientifically, not just in terms of research that has been done on the health impact of living under racism in the United States, but research on Holocaust victims that has shown not only that for some victims, their DNA um, permanently changed and impacted their descendants. There have been reparations that, has been, that have been paid for individuals who were in their mother's womb um, at the time their mother was incarcerated in a concentration camp and tortured. And so we know that there's a health impact medically, physically, we know that there's a psychological impact. And so I think that uh, those reparations should recognize that and it is already happening in CARICOM in the Caribbean. CARICOM is a, actually a regional trade organization that is now being used for English speaking Caribbean countries to collectively pursue reparations for slavery from the UK. And it's something called the CARICOM points that are informing reparations efforts across the diaspora, and I mean the world. And part of that is the economic component of reparations, the educational component, the health component of reparations as well, and uh, memorialization. And so I would recommend a package that recognizes the multi-layered um, human rights violations that have happened over time and their layered impacts on the community as well. Recognizing that internally, there are these discussions going on about for which reparations for who counts and, and who doesn't, and then where are there ways for there to be collaboration going forward. Some have pushed back on this idea of reparations because they say they were never slaveholders. So why should they have to bear any cost for reparations? How would you answer that? We are talking about state sanctioned slavery, state-sanctioned violence, state-sanctioned economic discrimination. And so the country, the government is responsible. Also have other institutions that have their own policies as a function of this. For example, um, I have worked with Georgetown on their legacy of slavery because Georgetown owned a plantation. Georgetown almost became bankrupt and it was saved by the president of the university who sold 272 enslaved Africans throughout the South. And those profits were used to save Georgetown. And there is extensive detailed documentation to show that. And so there is accountability. Many institutions that exist today could not have without the institution of slavery. Wealth that has been accumulated could not have transferred across generations without the institution of slavery. And there's also the accountability for allowing a system that started with slavery, but a system of racial injustice built on that, that has continued ever since, that there's accountability that 
this country and its institutions are accountable for. And this is why you see these institutional level reparations efforts happening. Also, the privilege that has come with that and that has allowed for land ownership, preferential access to loans from banks, being able to compete to enter universities in a system that did not allow broad competition because women and minorities were not attend college. And so, yes, there there is accountability, and for this country to move forward, I think it's it's necessary. Well, Kathy Powers, I want to thank you so much for talking with us. It's been fascinating. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Associate Professor of Political Science, Kathy Powers. You can find this and a longer unedited interview at KUNM.org, as well as additional reading about reparations. That's also where you can find all of our episodes. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. Mm-hmm.